This week, hormone therapy in patients with breast cancer and new colon cancer screening guidelines. Hello, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. I'm your host, Amol Verma, a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I'm joined today by Nathan Zilbert, who is a resident in general surgery, also at the University of Toronto. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? Great, Amol. How are you doing? Uh, I'm great, Nathan. It is a joy to have you here. In case uh, you were not aware, the last couple of episodes have just been me, my microphone. By yourself. All by All, myself. I know. I uh, I felt bad for you, which is why I uh, got back to you, you know, this time and after ignoring you for two weeks like everyone else did. <laughs> well, at least someone returns my phone calls. I'm I'm grateful to that. Um, I wish we could. I wish we had the rights to like music tracks, and in the background we could have that song like "All by Myself." <laughs> <laughs> that would be better than you singing it. That's that would true. be way better. All right, let's move on before we move into deteriorate. So this week we're talking about uh, hormone therapy in patients with breast cancer. And to be specific, we're talking about uh, aromatase inhibitors for patients who have ductal carcinoma in situ. Um, so Nathan, kick us off and tell us, first of all, the one line headline about uh, a couple of studies that came out on this topic. Yeah, so there were two studies uh, that came out in The Lancet at the end of February of this year studying uh, anostrozole, an aromatase inhibitor, uh, compared to tamoxifen as uh, adjuvant therapy for people with uh, DCIS. And uh, the main headline is basically that both of these uh, uh, agents are effective at preventing uh, breast cancer recurrence, uh, perhaps with uh, some suggestion that uh, aromatase inhibitor could be, uh, could be better. But uh, that's a, that was a bit equivocal. Okay, so Nathan, tell me, pretend as if there were this were not actually real. Pretend that I am a complete ignoramus about uh, breast cancer, and tell me what ductal carcinoma in situ is. Well, I think it, it's it's uh, not a not a joke actually, because it is a bit of a confusing topic both for for patients and providers. Um, the name itself, ductal carcinoma in situ. It does explain, you know, this this process uh, histologically. It basically is dysplastic cells in the uh, in the breast tissue that that have not invaded the basement membrane. The reason why it's confusing for patients and, and physicians, though, is because I think unlike a lot of uh, pre malignant lesions, this is treated very aggressively with multimodal therapy that we would see for uh, invasive cancers. And also in the literature, terms like non-invasive breast cancer or stage zero breast cancer are, are thrown around interchangeably with DCIS, which does make it a little a little bit confusing for people. So uh, you're not alone, Amol. Yeah, well, or, thank or, you, or you're not, or you're not a, pretending to be alone in all sorts of ways. No, I, I mean it really is a source of confusion. And so, um, uh, can you just tell me? So the the management of DCIS is very similar to the management of. Uh, uh, like a locally invasive or a locally advanced breast cancer. Is that right? Well, uh, very similar to early stage breast cancer, I, I would say. And, and basically, you know, there have been, there's so many, you know, high quality randomized controlled trials for all different types of, of breast cancer <clears throat> over the past few decades. And, and 
similar to in- invasive breast cancer, the treatment of DCS has invo- evolved from all patients getting mastectomies to uh, what's called breast conserving therapy, which means uh, a lumpectomy with adjuvant or post-operative uh, whole breast radiation. And there have been trials that show that that combo of treatment is equal in terms of survival to mastectomy. And then there have been subsequent randomized controlled trials that have looked at adding uh, hormonal therapy, uh, traditionally with tamoxifen. And uh, it's been shown that in those patients who have uh, estrogen receptor positive DCIS, there is a a benefit of adding tamoxifen to uh, breast conserving therapy in terms of decreasing the rate of both ipsilateral and and contralateral uh, breast cancer developing after treatment for DCIS. Okay. And so for DCIS, the outcome, so if the management is roughly the same as for early stage breast cancer, are the outcomes better? Yeah. And even in this trial, uh, we'll, we'll get into the results, but the, you know, the, the follow-up for these studies was uh, nine and seven years and the survival is uh, over 90% for, uh, for both. So, so DCIS is thought to be a, a precursor lesion for breast cancer, uh, but also having it uh, is a marker for uh, breast cancer developing elsewhere, either the same or the contralateral breast uh, and uh, that's the, the rationale for adding, uh, you know, systemic therapy is that these patients are thought to be at a no high risk even after, after their local treatment for the, for the breast tissue that is not treated locally. And uh, ne- nevertheless, especially since these women are followed closely and uh, do receive in many cases some adjuvant therapy, their uh, chance of dying from any type of breast cancer is actually uh, very low. And even though those patients dying in these studies, the majority of the deaths were actually not breast cancer deaths. Okay. So that is a very helpful tutorial. Thank you. It's a pleasure to speak with someone who knows what they're talking about. So Nathan, tell me why they did this study. So there are a variety of uh, situations when endocrine therapy is used in um, breast cancer disease. And in basically all of them, uh, there's been a uh, interest in comparing aromatase inhibitors to uh, selective uh, estrogen receptor modulators, tamoxifen being the uh, the, the most notable drug in that class, uh, because tamoxifen does have some uh, uh, challenging side effects. The most notable being uh, VTE, and for those women who have not had a hysterectomy. Uh, endometrial cancer. So uh, aromatase inhibitors, which uh, have a different mechanism of action, uh, have been used in patients uh, who have invasive breast cancer and who require uh, hormonal therapy in the adjuvant setting, or also in uh, people who are on uh, endocrine therapy as prophylaxis, so patients who've never had uh, breast cancer. And and in these populations, uh, aromatase inhibitors have been shown to be uh, non-inferior, and have a, a you know have have this better side effect profile, and I, I should also mention that aromatase inhibitors can only be used in in postmenopausal women. So all of these studies, including the two that we're talking about today, are are limited to postmenopausal women, which is the majority of of patients that have breast cancer. Sure, and postmenopausal women with uh, hormone receptor positivity in the breast cancer. Right, right. 
Okay, so Nathan, uh, tell me about the study that they did. So there were there were two studies. One um, called NSABP thirty five, which was a, a multi center trial from North America involving a, a little over three thousand women, and then the second study was called IBIS two, which was uh, from basically everywhere else in the world. Also had uh, over three thousand women. So these were both very large studies. So I'll focus on the the North American one. Uh, the they were very similar in their in their methodologies and, and the patients that they enrolled. Um, and they were both published in the side, Lancet sort side, of at the side same by time. Side. The, uh, so these were both double-blind, uh, multi-centered, randomized controlled trials, <clears throat> again, with, with huge uh, you know numbers of women enrolled. Okay, Nathan, so let me just jump in there. Uh, we sort of generally summarized before that the patients included in this trial are postmenopausal women with uh, estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. And estrogen receptor positive. DCIS. Yes, that's what I was just, that was the next part I was going to. So thank you for correcting that. And I guess who had received the other therapies that you traditionally receive in the sense they'd receive breast conserving therapy, right? Right. So they excluded patients who had mastectomy. They excluded patients who had a history of previous breast cancer or DCIS. They excluded patients who had some of the known complications previously of, of these, uh, trial drugs, uh, VTE, or, or other cancers, and they excluded patients um, who had been taking any of these medications in the past. Okay, and how many patients ended up being enrolled in the study? Just over 3,100. Okay, and so they were randomized to either tamoxifen or an astrozole? Right. And how long were they followed for? So all of these medications are given for five years. So they're daily medications given for five years after usually the uh, radiation has been uh, administered. And they were followed uh, in this uh, trial for a uh, median uh, nine years. And so what was the uh, primary outcome? So the primary outcome was breast cancer recurrence, either invasive or DCIS, and either ipsilateral or contralateral. And their, and their main finding overall was that the, there was no, no difference and breast cancer recurrence between the two uh, treatment arms. They did, as I mentioned before, stratify their results by age, and they did find that in women under 60, there were fewer breast cancer uh, recurrences in the inostrazole group, and that was statistically significant. They also found that this effect was uh, driven by contralateral uh, recurrences. So they postulated that perhaps because uh, women receive both surgery and uh, then whole breast radiation to the originally affected breast, that uh, that that breast is overall lower risk and that the effect of the systemic endocrine therapy is uh, more likely to be seen on the untreated side. That's what they postulated. Okay. So Nathan, you said that the, re the result, the main result here is that uh, anastrozole had similar outcomes to tamoxifen. Uh, was this designed as a non-inferiority trial? No, it was actually designed as a superiority trial. Okay. One reason that people prefer anastrozole over tamoxifen is its favorable side effect profile. You specifically mentioned thromboembolic <laughs> disease or VTE. So uh, any differences observed in that regard in this study? Yeah. So as expected, uh, there were more rates of VTE in the tamoxifen group, 2.7% compared to 08 uh, And then there were... More actual events of uh, gynecologic cancers, specifically endometrial cancer, in the uh, 
in the uh, tamoxifen group, although it was not uh, statistically significant in this trial. The, the main uh, side effect of concern for patients in uh, for patients taking aromatase inhibitors is um, osteoporosis and, and fractures related to that, and, and those were actually similar in this study. Uh, this study, this study also, they had a a, a paired publication. Uh, great strategy for all you uh, people trying to uh, increase your CVs. They uh, did a they did a survey uh, a subset of the patients about about a thousand uh, regarding quality of life outcomes, and they published the outcomes uh, separately. And so, in addition to the sort of objective measures of complications, they had several instruments. Uh, that they use to look at overall health, sexual function, gynecologic uh, symptoms, musculoskeletal symptoms. And, and their main findings from that uh, study was there were no differences in overall physical or mental or sexual health, uh, but tamoxifen had increased uh, vasomotor, uh, so, you know, like hot flash type symptoms and uh, bladder dysfunction type symptoms. They also measured vaginal dryness, pain with intercourse separately, which and osterosol uh, was shown to have slightly higher rates of, along with higher rates of musculoskeletal symptoms. So their conclusion from that uh, trial, uh, or that component of the trial, uh, was basically these are well-tolerated medications overall, and they're similarly well-tolerated, but uh, there are some you know differences when you kind of tr- break things down uh, quite, quite specifically, and that may help uh, patients and providers choose these medications for symptoms. Uh, been based on you know based on symptoms, and that's a reasonable thing to do given that in terms of the rates of breast cancer recurrence, they're they're similar. Uh, perfect. That makes a lot of sense. And so, um, are the results from this study, this American study, similar to the results of the international trial that was published at the same time? Yeah. So a very similar trial, similar number of patients, similar methodology, similar inclusion and exclusion criteria. Uh, the only main, I would say, uh, difference in the their inclusion criteria was they didn't allow patients with a couple of other pre-malignant or early stage, but depending on uh, you know, how you view these lesions, uh, in uh, a typical ductal hyperplasia and lobular carcinoma in situ. But these, this was a very small number of the overall uh, enrolled group, like less than 1%, so I don't think a big deal. Their follow-up is a little bit less seven years as, as opposed to nine years, but their results were, were quite similar. So they basically showed equivalent uh, rates of breast cancer recurrence. They're, they didn't stratify by age. They didn't, uh, so they didn't have any subgroups that showed a difference between the two drugs. So their main conclusion was basically these are similar in their effect. And they did show that there were higher rates of um, both endometrial and ovarian cancer in the uh, tamoxifen group. They showed uh, higher rates of uh, some fractures, particularly pelvic fractures in the aromatase inhibitor groups, though low rates overall. Okay. Uh, so, Nathan, you think that this is going to have an effect on practice? Has the field, you know, this these studies were started a long time ago uh, due to the nature of their long follow-up. Has the field already moved beyond them or is this still really important? So, I, I think, you know, this... Uh, adds to the existing literature that shows that basically in those contexts where uh, uh, tamoxifen has been used as sort of a standard treatment 
uh, or in, in some cases as a prophylactic uh, intervention for breast cancer, aromatase inhibitors are generally speaking at least equally effective and uh, that these trials uh, provide robust evidence for that being the case as adjuvant therapy for DCIS. I think there is a uh, question that is asked often, it seems like, uh, you know, and I, I will obviously plead some degree of ignorance here as I'm not the person generally uh, prescribing adjuvant uh, systemic therapy, uh, but they often don't give these women any uh, endocrine therapy because the overall effect of the endocrine therapy comp- as, I guess, a additional treatment strategy over uh, the breast conservation surgery is low. And it is, right. And it, I mean, one of the things is that these trials were not placebo-controlled, so... Uh, yeah, and, and in, in the placebo, placebo-controlled trials done previously with tamoxifen versus placebo, the incremental benefit of the tamoxifen is low. It is restricted to ER-positive patients, and it is not necessarily standard to get uh, receptor status on specimens for DCIS, but it can be requested. And I think, you know, it's, so it's, it's a, in the subset of patients for whom, for whatever reason, treating oncologist feels like this is maybe a higher risk patient, maybe because they're younger, maybe, or even, you know, they're just uh, with their, they're anxious about uh, breast cancer recurrence and they uh, would prefer, you know, uh, you know, do everything, doctor, whatever you can do for me, do it. And you were to get receptor status and they were ER positive. I think this is important because it shows that you have two therapeutic options with similar oncologic uh, outcomes and different side effect profiles that may make one more attractive to the other, depending on the patient. So I definitely think that these are important trials. Perfect. Okay. Thanks, Nate. Let's change gears and talk about something else that you know a lot about. Uh, Let's talk about the brand new recommendations for colorectal cancer screening in primary care, the brand new Canadian guidelines on this from the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Healthcare, which was published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Yes, very exciting for those of us studying for our Royal College exams that they came out with new guidelines probably in the period of time between when the exam was written and when we and when we have to actually write it so we don't know if uh, adding to this additional <laughs> just an additional touch of uncertainty for to mix with your anxiety those selfish concerns aside though uh, I agree of course that these are uh, important uh, this is an important new guideline and uh, excited to talk about it with you okay so the major updates in these recommendations seem to be just to give the headline uh, that Colorectal cancer screening should not be performed in patients over the age of 75 years, that colonoscopy should not be first line for colorectal cancer screening, and they have included strong recommendations for the screening of people who are between the age of 60 and 74 years old. So those are sort of the updates from the previous. Right. Okay. So Nathan, the as you are, I'm sure, well aware, colorectal cancer, second most common cancer-related death in men, third most common in women, and something like 25,000 Canadians diagnosed with colorectal cancer in 2015, probably several hundred of which were fortunate enough to be treated in your hands, my friend. (laughs) Um, I'm blushing. Yeah. And so... um, 
the rationale, I guess, for screening is that most cancers arise from polyps that develop slowly over time, and screening allows you to detect early stage cancer or polyps and do something about it um, in order to alter the trajectory of the disease. Um, and this guideline that has recently been released is an update to the original guideline, which was published in 2001. So that was a long time ago. And the original guideline, I guess, recommended annual or every two year uh, fecal occult blood testing and uh, flexible sigmoidoscopy every five years in asymptomatic people who are over the age of 50. Okay. So what, uh, so what are the new, what are the new guidelines? Yeah. So the new guidelines basically uh, break down into several uh, major recommendations. So the first examines patients or adults, I guess, who are between the ages of 50 and 74. And they recommend fecal occult blood testing using one of two mechanisms, the fecal immunochemistry testing or the guaiac uh, fecal occult blood test. Uh, so one of two mechanisms and that it, this be done every two years. Or patients receive a flexible sigmoidoscopy every 10 years. So the, they comment specifically that you should use one or the other modality, and they've actually extended the duration of the flexible sigmoidoscopy from every five years to every 10 years. They make the comment that the evidence for this is strong for uh, individuals between the ages of 60 and 74 years, but is weak for the individuals between 50 and 59 years. Um, and the reason that they say that the evidence is weak is not actually that the strength, or sorry, I should be clear, they, they say that the strength of their recommendation is uh, strong uh, versus weak in the in the younger population. And the reason that the strength of the recommendation is weaker uh, is because of differences in absolute risk reduction that you get from screening between the groups. So the incidence of cancer is higher in older people. And so the absolute risk reduction that you get is better than uh, in the younger groups. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think conventional teaching and certainly conventional practice uh, from my perspective during during my training has been you're 50, you need a colonoscopy. And, you know, we that's a common reason for family doctors referring patients to surgeons or gastroenterologists who do endoscopy. And, you know, I... I think giving more detailed thought to the patient's age or uh, generally counseling people about alternative uh, screening modalities is not uh, admittedly very typical in, uh, in practice. I, you know, uh, if, if they've made it to my office and they want a colonoscopy, sure, you know, that's the best test. That's uh, a, a common uh, thing that I've heard. Uh, so, I mean, I think these are quite uh, qualitatively different recommendations from what uh, at least uh, those of us that do endoscopy and screening colonoscopy experience. Yeah. And so that and the evidence for this is pretty good, right? There's a meta-analysis of multiple randomized control trials um, showing that the fecal occult blood testing reduces mortality uh, f with respect to colon cancer Um and it reduces the incidence of late stage colorectal cancer uh, with a you know relative risk reduction of about you know twenty percent uh, for colorectal cancer related mortality, and that the absolute reduction in the death from colorectal cancer um, 
leads to an, a number needed to screen to prevent one death of uh, 377 patients over a median follow-up period of about 18 years. So pretty good. And for FlexSig, the number needed to screen, you know, obviously different patient populations, perhaps in the two in the in the studies. Um, but the number needed to screen they found for flexible sigmoidoscopy was 850 over a shorter follow-up period of about 11 years. So um, we're talking about f- fairly reasonable. Yeah, rates these are these of- are these are good tests, which in randomized controlled trials have been shown to have mortality benefit. Yeah, and the the um, the one comment is in that younger age group, the number needed to screen goes up. It goes well over 2,000. And so that's the rationale for their uh, weaker recommendation in that age group. But um, you're right. So the, there's strong evidence for the use of these tests. And uh, certainly conventional practice has pushed us toward colonoscopy now if you have any abnormality on any of those tests, you're going to get a colonoscopy, right? Right, definitely. So this, the next recommendation is quite interesting. They specifically address address the issue of adults over the age of 75, and they make a recommendation that these adults not be screened. Now, they, they are careful to say that this is a weak recommendation with low-quality evidence. And in fact, the rationale for this recommendation is that there is an absence of randomized control trial evidence showing improvement in colorectal cancer, mortality, or morbidity. So not that there are trials that have shown no benefit, but that there are not enough trials or there are no trials with enough right. patients. Right, Th- those patients patient were conventionally excluded. So, I mean, I, you know, I think there are a lot of parallels here to, uh, to breast cancer screening, both in terms of you know, some of the specific recommendations and also some of the evolution over time. So there are recommendations regarding breast cancer screening, generally not to not do it, but only do it if the woman has a life expectancy over 10 years or something like that, uh, with, I think, similar similar kind of logic. And also, uh, over time, evidence suggesting that in younger patients, a, a decade earlier in, in, for breast cancer, uh, the, the benefit of screening is, is less and you know, it's becoming more and more controversial as to whether it's, it's needed to be done. Right. And so for this age group in in the colorectal cancer screening, the recommendation is basically that, uh, you know, based on reduced life expectancy at this age, you know, they recommend not screening. At the same time, they comment that, you know, the incidence of cancer rises with age and uh, there's minimal evidence for this. So if you have a patient who is over the age of 74, but does not have illnesses that affect their quality of life and or lifespan, uh, you may be less concerned about the fact that there's not a lot of evidence for that patient group and you may recommend uh, screening anyway. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think uh, it's a typical, you know, the the absence of high quality evidence doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do, but I think it means you need to think about it. And we all know the spectrum of 75-year-olds that you'll see in your practice and the ones that it would be a no-brainer to screen and the ones that would be probably inhumane to put them through any kind of test, particularly particularly in an an invasive endoscopic procedure. Yeah, for sure. And so then the final key recommendation of this guideline is to not use colonoscopy as the initial screening test. And again, this is a weak recommendation with low quality evidence. And basically it's based on the rationale that uh, there's not a lot of evidence for colonoscopy as the initial screening test. And that 
It is sig- specifically no randomized controlled trials. Right. Uh, and it is significantly more costly. Now, they do say that there are four randomized control trials currently underway investigating colonoscopy. And so, uh, you know, the results of those studies will obviously inform the next set of guidelines. Yeah. And they also uh, tried to make some uh, evaluation of the complication rates associated with colonoscopy. Uh, so, I mean, there are significant rates of perforation. I mean, not significant in that we see them all the time, but at a population level, if it happens, you know, one in every 1,000 or 2,000 colonoscopies, that's a, a high morbidity, expensive, uh, potentially, you know, life-threatening uh, complication. And in the absence of evidence that it's superior to fecal local blood testing, which obviously has a has no complication rate, they are making these uh, these recommendations in, in that context. So thanks, Nathan. That was um, that was really helpful, and even just for my own practice, it's useful for me to know and not to to jump to you. Like I jump to it all the time as well. Have you had your screening colonoscopy? So uh, it's really a shift in my thinking. So thanks very much. Let's uh, move on to our good stuff segment. So tell me something short and sweet that caught your attention from the world of medicine. So I saw this uh, article from the Washington Post that caught my eye. The title is, Can Alzheimer's Lost Memories Be Recovered? And uh, they reviewed uh, some animal studies published recently in in Nature uh, where they have a a mouse model for Alzheimer's disease. And they basically, uh, without getting into the details uh, too much, mostly because I don't understand them, (laughs) they were able to... Uh, demonstrate that uh, with some manipulation, it seems like the memories in Alzheimer's uh, modeled mice remain in the brain but are not accessible. And with some manipulation, they can become accessible again, which uh, I guess opens up uh, uh, kind of a different perspective on this type of uh, memory loss, which uh, in addition to obviously strategies for preventing it from ever happening. There may be some at least theoretical possibilities of reversing the memory loss, which uh, is is pretty impressive, albeit obviously very preliminary uh, for the time being. Oh, that's super fascinating. Um, When you say manipulation, and I'm not going to push you to get into the details here, but just like at a high level, do you know what they were manipulating? Was it like cognitive tasks for the mice or was it uh, some kind of intervention? They did something called optical stimulation of brain cells, and this uh, basically allows some genetic mo- modification in, in in the neurons that are being stimulated. Hmm. Let's keep it. Let's uh, leave it there. <laughs> let's let's move on. on. I you you had me at optical stimulation. Uh, <laughs> okay, so my good stuff is a beautiful story in the Montreal Gazette, which full disclosure was written by one of my best friends. Um, so this is the story of Mikola, an 11-year-old boy who was injured by a grenade in eastern Ukraine in August 2015. Uh, the grenade killed his brother and uh, turned Mikola into a triple amputee, removing both of his legs and one of his arms. Wow. There uh, have been, I guess, quite an active group of Canadian volunteers, both medical and non-medical, who have been working in the Ukraine, largely driven by the Ukrainian diaspora. And 
so medical missions have been going there and flying in physicians and other medical staff for two weeks at a time to treat wounded soldiers. Um, and they heard about Mikola's story and they asked the clinical team to make an exception for a non-soldier. And the leader of the Canadian delegation, who is a physician from Sunnybrook Hospital, Dr. Ole Antonishin, agreed. Uh, and so they operated on Mikola there in the Ukraine, but they decided that he needed care to help him rehab uh, and actually be able to walk again. And if he had been in Ukraine, he would basically then be wheelchair bound in a country that is really not particularly friendly to uh, individuals who are in wheelchairs, not a very accessible country. And so they, there was a large effort by Ukrainian volunteers to bring Mikola over to the Shriners Hospital for Children in Montreal. Uh, the local volunteers greeted him. They've helped translate for Mikola and his mother who do not speak English or French yet. Uh, and Mikola has been rehabbing at the Shriners Hospital and now he has, you know, these prosthetic devices and he's able to walk again. Um, and it's an amazing story about community and compassion and uh, perseverance and resilience of this uh, young boy that I thought was uh, very touching. Remarkable. Yeah. So on that note, um, have a great day, Nathan. And uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Let's do it again sometime. Hopefully before I have many more weeks of prolonged loneliness. Do you want to sing again? <laughs> I think we prefer the purpose of our viewers. <laughs> Let's just let us go out to our outro music. Okay, great. <laughs> Thanks, Amol. Take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash the Rounds Table. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Rounds Table Podcast. Thanks for listening.